it was not one of my proudest moments as a dad. I, my son was about four years old at the time. This was several years ago. And he had done something that four-year-olds do, and he had done it for the 1,000th time. So in my incredible wisdom and knowledge, I decided to fix this problem once and for all by raising my voice. My face got red, my voice got loud, the veins were bulging out of my neck, and you would have winced if you could have seen a grown man standing over a four-year-old child in a threatening position. It was pretty embarrassing if we're honest about it, if I'm honest about it. I realized that I was out of control, so I just walked out of the room. I was ashamed that I wasn't a better parent, and I was wondering why I kept getting so angry. I was getting angry totally out of proportion to the circumstances. Now, my little son was four at the time, and so he couldn't tell me the things that I needed to hear to see what was really going on. He couldn't say things like, Dad, why do you get mad at the precise moments when I need someone to parent me? He couldn't say, Dad, your your anger makes it impossible for me to receive correction and discipline as if it's coming from a loving place. He couldn't say, Dad, your anger seems like it's more about you than it is about me because it's way out of proportion. He couldn't say, Dad, if you keep talking to me like this, you're going to ruin our relationship for a lifetime. He was four, so he couldn't say any of those things. But I'm married to an incredible, godly, strong woman, and she could say all of those things. And so God began the process in my life of saying, you know, I had developed this destructive habit of anger that was just totally out of proportion to what was happening in my children. Caught me by surprise because... Um, I didn't think of myself as an angry person before then, but when I had kids in my life, all of a sudden it was, it was exposed. And th- what that started in my life was a process of change that God did in, in my heart, in my soul, in those deep places inside of me that continues to this day. And I am so glad that I serve a God, and if you're a Christian, we serve a God who doesn't give up on us, and when we When we totally blow it and our destructive habits come rushing to the forefront of our life, he doesn't say, oh, that was just one time too many. You need to go find a different religion. He loves us through it. He's committed to our change. He is committed to loving you through the mess of your life. God is committed to helping us change. I'm so grateful for that. Now, we're in the second week of our formation teaching series, and we're talking about change that lasts a lifetime. We're not talking about resolutions that last until February. We're talking about that sort of deep, meaningful change that lasts your whole whole entire life. And last week, we discussed how this, this gospel, which is good news about Jesus, that's what gospel means, it means that change is possible. That if Christianity means anything, then one of the things it means is that deep, meaningful change is possible in your life, that we actually saw last week how uh, the, the Bible says the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you in your life. And so if you thought, man, I don't think I could change, I don't know if I could ever change, this has been going on for a decade, two decades, three decades, five decades, six decades, I think that's the oldest we have in our church, right? We, you know who you are. Um, that, you know, I, I don't know if I could ever change. Well, that power that God has, that same power that could raise a dead person is available to you in your life. Christianity means change is possible. And if you missed that message, that's okay. Download the Renewal Church Boston app and you can always see our previous teachings on there. And here's the deal. We all need that kind of change in our life at one point or another. Every one of us is gonna find ourselves in a place where we need deep, meaningful change where we discover destructive habits in our life that absolutely have to change or they're going to ruin our lives. And I'm not talking here about 
biting your nails. That's a gross habit. You know, um, I'm not talking about those little annoyances that your mom said, oh, that's a bad habit. You know, you need to stop eating your boogers. I don't know what your mom said to you, honestly. Not that my mom ever said that to me. I'm just saying, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the kind of change that if you don't change it, will wreck your life and ruin your relationships. That's what I'm talking about. And I believe that that change can happen in your God, in your life, and that God is committed to it. I'm talking about the destructive habits like retreating into an icy shell when you get angry in order to hurt the people who are closest to you. That's a destructive habit. I'm talking about playing the martyr in your relationship so that no matter how poorly you treat the people around you, you still feel like you're the victim and they owe you. I'm talking about texting your old boyfriend or girlfriend late at night. Yeah, come on, no one's ever done that in here. Don't even laugh or giggle because your, your neighbors are going to look at you awkward. You swore you would never do it again. You swore you were done with them, but it keeps happening. I'm talking about drinking just a couple drinks at each night. You get home from work just to take the edge off, and then on the weekend, you drink a couple more drinks, and then sometimes you wake up and you're trying to figure out what happened. It's those kind of destructive habits. I'm talking about trying to control and change the person that you're in a relationship with to such a degree that whenever they don't meet your standards, you withhold your affection from them to punish them. Or you give them the cold shoulder or you bring up the past. I'm talking about compulsively visiting websites that you have no business being on because you have no other way of coping with the anxiety that's in your life. I'm talking about getting into thousands of dollars of credit card debt because you lack self-control and it makes you feel better when you come home after a long day to sit down at the computer and click, click, click and buy, buy, buy and you have packages at your doorstep you haven't even opened because it's a compulsion. I'm talking about being harsh and demanding with the people that you work with, getting them to do what you want out of fear of your personality and your wrath rather than any sort of healthy respect or encouragement. Often, we find ourselves with destructive habits that we have no idea how to stop, no idea how to change, no idea how to escape from the life that we've created. And if you're tired, and if you're exhausted, I know because I've been in the exact same place, there is no human being who is exempt from the need to change. There's no pastor, priest, or clergy. There's no saint, no Mother Teresa. And if you've ever been in a relationship with another warm, willing human being, you know there is no person who's exempt from change, and that includes us. Because of these destructive habits in our lives, it leads us all to ask a couple of fundamental questions about people and about humanity. Number one, here's the first question. Why do people do the things they do? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever been talking to your boss at work and just saying, like, why does she do the things that she, I have no idea. And the question that matches that is, why do I do the things that I do? Have you ever done something that just absolutely wrecked wrecked and ruined your life or a relationship and you just kind of blew something up and you thought, why did I even do that? Why do people do the things that they do? And here's the second question that comes with that once you start asking it. How does lasting change happen in my life? Because we try to change and then things revert back to the way they were. Because we change for a little while, but then we run out of self-control, we run out of willpower. How does lasting change happen in my life? We all need to change. Go ahead and turn to your neighbor and tell them, you need to change. Yeah, did you just, did any, did I just get any spouses in trouble in this room? Turn to your neighbor and tell them, I need to change. 
I just saved a couple marriages. Uh, you know, I think that's a pretty good work for today. We're not even five minutes in. Okay. Listen, everybody wants to know how to change. Everybody wants to change. And, and listen, there's no shortage. You can go to Barnes & Noble. There is a big market for the delusion that you can make change happen quickly in your life. That if you just follow these three or four steps, change is guaranteed. It's automatic. There is a book. And I don't even know if it's good or bad, but there is a book called Have a New Kid by Friday. And it sold over 700,000 copies, according to the cover. Right? There's, there's no, no lack of resources for quick, instant change. And here's the deal. If you go back to Barnes & Noble six months from now, or let's face it, it's Amazon. Okay? How is Barnes & Noble even still open? Does anyone know? Okay, but if you go back there six months from now, it's going to be a whole new set of book, books with a whole new set of principles promising quick change. Okay. But in contrast to that, the scriptures are very clear that there are three non-negotiable elements of lasting change. That if you want to see change happen in your life, you can't skip these, you can't go around these, you can't just practice certain tactics to create behavior change for a little while. It won't work without these three essential elements of change in your life. Meaningful, lasting change is not going to happen. You must be committed to these. But they work, and the reason they work is because they are based on the way that God made people. They'll work if you're not a Christian. If you're here today and you're investigating Christianity, you can try this out and see if it works in your life. And it works because it's based on the way that God made people. It just works. It's principles. And principles are true whether you understand them or not. Some of you are living out the truth of principles in your life right now that you don't even understand. And so understanding these three non-negotiable elements of change is one of the keys to lasting change. These keys are based on an unflinching look at human nature, and they tap into the power that God has to change your life. So if you're committed to personally seeing them through, and you're committed to seeing them through in the lives of people you love, you will eventually see change. Here's what they are, the three non-negotiable elements of change. Number one is confession. Confession is owning personal responsibility for your words and actions without excuses and without shifting the blame. Let me say that again. Confession is owning personal responsibility for your words and actions without excuses and without shifting the blame. That's what it is. Now, in the Bible, there's no little booth. You don't walk into a booth with a guy and slide open the window and he doesn't give you things to do, you know, like based on how bad you've been. That's just not in the scriptures. In the scriptures, confession is about radical ownership of how you've con contributed to the problem. Now, we see an example of confession happen in the Bible in Luke chapter 15. And Luke chapter 15 is a story that's called the prodigal son. And it's a fictional story told by Jesus to illustrate some things about heaven and about who God is and what he's like. And in this fictional story, a son demands his inheritance early. He leaves his home. He parties. He sleeps around. He lives recklessly until he finally ends up feeling empty and broken. In other words, he hits sophomore year. He has fallen into an unhealthy, destructive lifestyle, but there is a turning point for him in the story, and that's what we're going to see. Listen in on the story to the turning point for him. Luke 15, 17 through 19. When he came to his senses, now, if you've got your teaching notes today, if you're following along, circle the phrase, came to his senses, because that's a big one. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. 
That phrase come to your, came to his senses is so important. The first step in lasting change is always acknowledging reality. It is acknowledging your role in creating the mess that you're in. That's what confession is. Confession is saying the greatest danger in the world to me is inside of me, not outside of me. That if anything is going to ruin my life, it's what's in me, not what's outside of me. Confession is not natural for us. It's much more likely for us to blame or excuse. We often make excuses for ourselves. We tell lies, honestly. We tell lies about why we do the things that we do. Now, it's much nicer to call that blaming or excusing, but it's actually a lie about the nature of reality and the, the situation that we find ourselves in. We think that I, you know, we often think, you know, I act the way that I do because of other people. You know, if, if, if she wasn't so hard to work for, I, I wouldn't. You know, if he was more affectionate, than I would. You know, if they would just listen, then I would. We often blame other people for our responses. You are responsible for your response. Confession's a part of that. We often blame our family of origin. We, I do the things I do because my dad did the things he did. I do the things I do because of the way that my mom was. If my mom had been more affectionate, if my dad had been there, if my parents had stayed together, and we blame and blame and blame, and listen, like, that plays a role in, in how it shapes who we are. We're not denying that the past influences us, but change does not happen until you admit that I do the things I do because what's, of in, what's inside of me, not what they did behind me in my past. We, uh, we blame sometimes something as simple as a bad day. And we say, I'm really, we don't say, we say, I'm stressed out. I'm just so stressed out. And you know the reason that I, that I overeat to call my anxiety is because I'm just so stressed out. The reason that I, I snap at the people I love the most and I actually treat them worse than perfect strangers is because I'm stressed out and I had a bad day and work was so tough. Sometimes we even use the excuse, my body made me do it. Now, we don't ever say that. I've never actually heard someone say, my body made me do it. That's weird. Right? But we think, you know, that I was born with these desires and they're natural and good. It's just, I just, I, it's like I can't control myself. And it's like you get these desires that are just out of control in people's lives and I'm tired and I'm hungry. And so we blame our physical desires. Listen, when we stop blaming and making excuses and we take ownership of our problems and realize that the greatest danger to me is not outside of me but inside of me, that is the starting point of real change in your life. You have to come to see what you've done, and that's hard work. Listen to this. Maybe write this down in your notes. You cannot grieve what you cannot see, and you can't confess what you haven't grieved. Let me say that again. You cannot grieve what you cannot see, and you cannot confess what you haven't grieved. So one of the practical applications of this, what that means is if you want to get to the place where you can confess in your life, the very first step is you need to see what's really going on. And so when someone in your life needs deep and meaningful change in their life, one of the ways that God can use you to create change is just by helping them see. Now, how does that happen? 
Does it happen when you go home after the church today and say, said, the pastor told me I need to let this person know what's really going on in their life. So you step into the door and you say, I'm an instrument in the Redeemer's hands and let me tell you what's wrong with your life. Like it's, it's not gonna work. But a big part of it is just stop living in their delusion. You stop living in their lie and you say, no, that's not actually what's really going on here. When you do that, it's very destructive to our relationship and to our lives. You're helping them see That's a really dangerous thing to do. It takes tact, it takes wisdom, it takes discernment. But here's something that you can always do. You can ask other people to help you see yourself. Here's a powerful question that will change your life if you actually ask it. And I mean ask it out loud to people. What's it like to be on the other side of me? You wanna ruin your day? Ask that to someone you love. You want to ruin your day but rescue your life? Ask that to someone you love. What's it like to be on the other side of me? We, my wife and I actually did this a little while back. We were at a marriage retreat. And for us, we realized, here's where I realized the real power of the question was. I said, what's it like to be on the other side of me when I'm making a major decision? And she was like, oh, it's terrible. <laughs> here's the deal. You can't really see you. Who has the worst perspective in the world on your life? You do, because your eyes are stuck in your head. Everyone else can see you. You can't see you. That's why you need to be in relationships in order to change. You need people who see you who can help you get perspective on you. They help you see more clearly. We're hurt in relationships, but we're also healed in relationships. Right? Life is better connected because it's in those relationships that you begin to see and deep and meaningful change is possible. That's why when you're cut off from other people, You are limiting the amount of change that can happen in your life. You are changed in relationships, which is also why we say that circles are better than rows. When you come to church, you know how much of you people really see? The back of your head. So when you do your hair in the morning, listen, people can't see the real you. When you move from rows into circles and you join a community group, people can see you. Is that terrifying? Yeah, it's a little scary. I mean, they see of you as much as you choose to reveal, so there's some safety there. But that's where change really happens. Now, I want you to do this for me. Go ahead and pull out the connection card that was in, your, uh, was in your program when you came in today. And on the back, there's a next step section. And one of them, the last one, says, send me info on the community group connection event on February 9th right after the service. We're starting three new community groups, one for men, one for women, one for couples. And I want to invite you to be a part of it. If you come to the event, we're going to provide lunch. We'll provide childcare if you need it. We'll have some friendly volunteers there to help you get connected, and you'll get connected to people and form a group. You'll make a short-term commitment out of that. If you find a group that works for you, and um, you can find a night of the week and a time that works for you, you'll make a a six-week commitment. Could you show up six times to a group? That's kind of the question. And if they're all like, you know, psychopath murderers, you don't have to go again. Like you can just be done with it right there. But if you have a great opportunity, you have the chance to continue with the group for 18 to 24 months and make it more of a long-term group in your life. But you try it out. And here's what I've seen over and over and over again. God will change your life. You want change to happen? You need people. You need relationships. You need connection. And so you check that box and we'll get you all the information you need to join and be a part of that. Um, I've been in groups, I've been in groups my, my whole life, basically, since I was about 16. 
Some of them I really liked. Some of them were not like, you just didn't gel perfectly. But I never walked away from a group where I thought, I really regret being a part of that group. It's never happened. So, if that's what God's asking you to do, check that box. We'll get you the info you need. The first non-negotiable of lasting change in your life is confession. Owning personal responsibility for my words and actions without excuses or shifting the blame. Number two, second non-negotiable. Repentance. Repentance is a radical change in my heart that leads to a radical change in the direction of my life. Repentance is not just doing things differently, and it's not penance. Maybe you've heard of penance. Penance is I do things that help make up for the bad things I've done and put me on the right track. That's not in the Bible. In the Bible, repentance is a radical change in the heart that leads to a radical change in the direction of my life. Repentance is when my heart owns its need for control or it takes ownership of of my self-righteousness, or it takes ownership of my bitterness or my anger. And from this heart change, then there comes life change. And again, this is what we see in the story of the prodigal son, Luke 15. This is what the son is saying in the story. He says, I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. Underline that phrase, against heaven and against you. In this story, we see that there is real change in his heart. He's not just sorry about the condition of his life, but he realizes that he's wronged his father and wronged heaven. There's a horizontal component and a vertical component. And that change in his heart leads to the change in the direction of his life. He literally gets up and goes back to his father. And there are two signs in this passage and two signs in your life that repentance is truly starting in your heart and not just in the external, external circumstances of your life, but it's heart deep. The first sign that repentance is heart deep is that it changes his behavior. It's one thing to feel bad but not really change anything in your life. Have you ever been there? You just feel so broken. You feel like, I'm never going to do this again. And then it's like four days later, it happens again. That's a sign that repentance isn't heart deep. But there's a whole different thing which is to feel sorrow about your life and let that lead you to God-honoring action. 2 Corinthians 7.10 talks about this reality. It says there's actually two different kinds of sorrow. There's godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. That's our memory verse today. There is a kind of godly sorrow that actually leads to repentance in your life. That's how you know it's genuine. But there's also worldly sorrow. You know, you know what's shorthand for worldly sorrow? is being sorry that you got caught. You ever been there? You know, you're not really sorry about, uh, you're not taking ownership for your role in things. You're sorry that uh, the state of your marriage is in disarray. You're, you're sorry that, you know, your career's falling apart. You're, you're sorry about the state of your relationships or you, you feel bad about how your children act. But that is not a sign that you have become any less self-centered because everything's still focused on you know, how my life is falling apart and how it's affecting me. It hasn't been reversed yet where you say, this is how I've affected other people horizontally and vertically. It's worldly sorrow is when you're heartbroken, not because you're taking ownership of your sin, but because your dream of a perfect life has been shattered. The other sign that repentance is heart deep is that the prodigal son understands how his actions have affected God. There is a vertical component. He says, I've sinned against heaven and against my father. So 
when you come to see not only the horizontal aspects of your sin, but the vertical component of it as well, you begin to long for change, not just because of how it's affected your life, but also because it's destroying this vertical component with God. It's destroying your relationship with God. And sin is always a relationship destroyer. You don't have to be a Christian or believe in the truth of the Bible to understand that sin destroys your relationships. We've all lived that reality. And it's true with God, just like with people. Now, uh, we see this in the life of King David. King David was one of these, uh, he was a great king in the history of Israel. But he, he had this really checkered life. He committed adultery. And he had one of his personal bodyguard members murdered to cover up the adultery. And after he blows up his life just into a million pieces, he has this dramatic encounter with a prophet named Nathan, Nathan who helps King David see what he's done. And David does confess and repent. And then after, after this kind of all goes down, he writes a poem about his repentance. And he makes this statement to God in his poem about his repentance. He says, Against you, speaking to God, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, when I read that, my first reaction is, wait, what? Like, how can you say that you only sinned against God? Don't you remember that you, you committed adultery? I mean, we don't know if they had kids. You ruined a marriage. Your friend's body isn't cold yet. And you're saying, I only sinned against God? How could you say that against you and you alone have I sinned? Well, of course, what he's saying in poetic language is, as bad as I've hurt the people around me, as much of a mess as I've caused horizontally, I've come to realize that the mess that I've made vertically is even bigger. And I need to make it right. And that makes sense. Because if you hit one of my children, they can forgive you. And you can fix that relationship, but you and me still have a huge issue to deal with. And when you sin against one of God's children, you know, you can even make that relationship right. There is still that relationship with your heavenly father that ha something has to happen there, right? You need some forgiveness. There needs to be some change in regard to your heavenly father. That's why a sense of offending God is a second sign of true repentance, you begin to see all the consequences for your actions, not, not just the ones in front of your face, but even the spiritual ones as well. So repentance is a radical change in my heart that leads to a radical change in the direction of my life. The three non-negotiable elements. We said it was confession, repentance, and here's the last one. It's faith. It's faith. Now listen, because this is where Christianity and a relationship with God makes all the difference in your life. These first two things, right, you can do them whether you're a Christian or not, can't you? You can get radically honest about it. You can have this deep sense of brokenness for how you've destroyed things in your life. But this is really where the rubber meets the road and the power of God to help you change becomes available. Usually, when we make a mess of our lives, our first tendency is to make some new rules so we don't do it again. We say, uh, I'll only drink on the weekends. No more weeknight drinking, only on the weekends. We say, I'll only stay over at my girlfriend's apartment until 11 p.m., and then I'll go home. We say, I'll count to 10 to calm down before I speak every time. 
We say, I'm only going to go this far with my, physically with my boyfriend from now on. We add laws on top of laws on top of laws to try to create the behavior change that we look for. And listen, boundaries, not a bad thing. Big fan of boundaries. Love boundaries. But boundaries aren't going to change your heart. And I am concerned that so many times we are asking the law to do what only grace can do. The grace of God, grace is this undeserved help that God gives you. The grace of God is the most powerful, transformative force that has ever been discovered by people or revealed from heaven. Grace is what changes you. And if you are expecting the law to do what grace can do, then change efforts will constantly fail in your life. You'll be the one sneaking around the systems you've set up so that you can sin again. We need God's grace to change. His help. We need his help to change. And the only way to have access to the grace of God in your life is by faith in Jesus Christ. That is the overarching message of the Bible. I mean, this is everywhere in the Bible. This is like message numero uno in the Bible. If you want the grace of God in your life, you get it through faith in Jesus. Let me prove that to you from the scriptures. Romans 5 says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. You want to be standing in the grace of God? You want to be swimming in the grace of God? You want to be drowning in the grace of God? Just like so much grace that you don't know what to do with it? The only way you gain access to that position of standing in his grace is by faith in Jesus Christ. The grace that you so desperately need, that you so desperately long for in your life comes to you by faith. And I just think like, don't we already kind of know this? I mean, at what point do we figure out change in my life is not coming through more, will, more willpower or better rules? It's just, not, it's just not happening that way. And we also know we need this because the first two things we talked about today that create lasting change in your life, confession and repentance, are those things natural to you? They're not to me. When someone comes to you and confronts you with your sin weaknesses and your destructive habits, what's your reaction? Do you say... Oh, thank you so much for pointing out all of these weaknesses in me. Or do you activate your inner lawyer? Do your ears turn bright red? Do you start defending yourself and excusing yourself and blaming things and tell them that they're an idiot because they don't know? Maybe don't say it like that, but maybe that's what the tone of your voice says. Like, of course. It does not come naturally to us. They are unnatural to us. Whereas hiding and blaming, those things are natural to us ever since Genesis chapter 2, the fall. So if you want the regular rhythm of confession and repentance in your life that leads to change, you don't need your natural responses. You need something supernatural in your life. You need God's help. Confession and repentance awaken our need to trust someone greater than ourselves for help, they awaken our need for faith. And if repentance is seeing and, seeing and admitting my sin and turning away from it, then faith is seeing Christ's glory and grace and turning to him. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Repentance is turning away from my sin. Faith is turning towards Jesus. 
the definition, the definition of faith that I've lived by for years is very simple. It's trusting God enough to obey him. It's trusting God enough to do what he says. Faith is believing that if I do what God has asked me to do, God will do what he promised he would do. And if I trust him, then I'll just do what he says. Faith is believing this, 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession is the work God has asked us to do. But what he promises to do is to forgive us. You know, one of the reasons we don't confess and get radically honest is because we're worried that we'll be condemned if we do. We're worried, what will God think of us? What will God say of us? What will God do to us? But in faith, we can reach out and confess because he's faithful to forgive us. Faith is marked by godly self-forgetfulness, where I'm no longer the center of the universe and people don't exist to serve me. But instead, I exist to love God and love people. Faith is believing, like John 3.30, that he must become greater and I must become less. By faith, you receive new energy, new joy, new gratitude, new hope, new perseverance, new purpose. By faith, you come into the presence of a loving father. And this grace, this unconditional love, changes you. This is what happened to the prodigal son. Here's kind of the end of his story. It says, the prodigal son got up, he went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, the father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. So he ran to his son, he throws his arm around him and kissed him. The son says to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The prodigal son confessed. His confession led to repentance. His repentance led him into the father's arm. And when he experienced the unconditional love and grace of his father, it changed him. And so he can come into his father's presence and celebrate with joy. He was changed. Just believing that if he just turned to his father, he would be met with love. Author Paul Tripp, in his book, How People Change, and this message is based on a talk he gave, and you can find the access to that on the back of your notes. He summarized this process well to wrap it up. He said, the life of repentance and faith puts to death the deeds of the sinful nature and lives more and more in righteousness. The Father who calls us to obedience has provided everything we need in Christ to live it out. When we fail, he promises never to leave or forsake us. He wins us back by the Spirit and gives more grace when we confess and repent of sin. For that, this Christian husband and father is grateful. It is true that Jesus died for your past so that your sins could be wiped away. It is true that Jesus died for your future so that your eternity could be settled in the presence of God and you could have eternal life. But it is also true that Jesus died for your today so that when you walk out of this church building, your relationships can be characterized by peace and joy instead of arguing. That when you start off on Monday morning, you can have all the grace of God you need to change you at a deep way. And thank God that by faith we have all the grace we need to live for today. Now, when we started off, I told you about my incredible parenting skills with my young children. Now, after I was done with all my self-righteous anger toward my four-year-old son all those years ago, I had to go back to him and apologize. And can I just tell you, it's not a great feeling having to confess your sins and ask for forgiveness from your four-year-old. But I did it. 
and he forgave me because he's four and because he's amazing. And I just got to tell you, I am so glad that God's not done with me yet. And I'm so glad that you are at Renewal Church today too. I believe God brought you here because he wants to change your life. He is committed to giving you the help that you need to change. And it may not be a 10-day process. Maybe it's a 10-year process, but God is completely committed to getting you ready for heaven and to changing your life. You can cooperate with God's work in your life by walking that road of confession, repentance, and faith. There is no other way to lasting change.